This is Hemant Mehta for the Friendly Atheist Podcast. If you like what you're going to, please go to patreon.com slash friendly atheist podcast. This is a bonus episode that we are posting because uh, my buddy Seth Andrews has a new book out and I want to make sure you all are aware of it. You, If you know Seth Andrews, you know him as the host of the Thinking Atheist Podcast and perhaps from his YouTube videos as well, which are always excellent. And if you've listened to him before and you know anything about his story, you may also know he's a former evangelical Christian, a former uh, Christian radio host, the kind who lived very much in a right-wing bubble. He says, idolized Rush Limbaugh, Glenn Beck, Fox News. And that's the focus of Seth's new book. It's called Confessions of a Former Fox News Christian. And it details that shift from that bubble into a very different place where he is now. So, hi, Seth. Thank you for being here. And I guess let me just start out by asking you, what's the difference between a regular Christian and a Fox News Christian, as you say in your title? Well, lately, I don't see much of a difference because there's, I mean, I'm not talking about the Sunday Christian, you know, the Easter and Christmas Christian who doesn't really attend and isn't really plugged in. But if you ask them, hey, do you believe in God or Jesus? And they're like, oh, yeah, sure. You know, I'm talking about the people who practice Christianity. Time and again, I see this tie to conservative right wing media. Fox News is their main hub for information, and they love Rush Limbaugh. Right-wing radio sort of speaks to them, and it's this weird sort of a, it's a contradictory message. You know, you are both a victor and a victim at the same time, right? I am here at this point in human history to represent my God in a Christian nation. My God conquers all, blah, blah, blah. At the same time, I'm under attack. The liberals, the seculars, the atheists, they want to come and strip me of all of my freedoms. I am persecuted. Therefore, I need God and my guns to defend against this persecution. <laughs> you know, So I see these messages, and I was the same guy, right? I was enjoying tremendous latitude and privilege. At the same time, I always felt like I was under attack and persecuted, and somehow these two perceptions existed in the same place. It was just Did you weird. recognize that? Did you recognize the hypocrisy or uh, the competing, con- uh, the conflict there, the dissonance at the same time? Oh, like, I, always, I always keep thinking, like, I wish I had as much power as they claim I do. Yeah, yeah. Well, no, I didn't. I wasn't cognizant of it until long after. Mm-hmm. You know, I came out of that and I began to look and I thought, well, you know, okay, wait. You know, what culture outside of Christianity enjoys as much latitude as Christianity has? I think it started when we began to dissect the annual war on Christmas. Mm-hmm. You know, Bill O'Reilly at Fox News, he championed this starting in November of every year, like clockwork. And then we saw Joshua Feuerstein, you know, he comes forward and he's like, "There, Jesus is under attack. And so I started That's looking at him. Right. has a red cup. Yeah, I'm sorry. How exactly have they attacked you? Well, you know, people are saying happy holidays voluntarily. So that's an attack on Jesus. And then you start to look at the lives that these quote unquote persecuted people lead. All right. Well, have they forbidden you to worship at your church? No. Do you, 
Is it illegal for you to celebrate Christmas? Are, are you even ostracized culturally for celebrating Christmas religiously? No. Is there a good chance your elected representative is a Christian? Yes. If you go to a hotel, what kind of book's hidden in the drawer? It's not the Koran. It's a Bible. Can you put religious symbols in your yard? Yeah. You can wear religious apparel, t-shirts, jewelry, necklaces. You can have, you got Christian broadcasting networks, radio and television, Christian bookstores that sell all manner of books representing your faith. I mean, tell me in what and they're way. All say, and they're all saying we're being persecuted. Yeah. In what way has your religious liberty been infringed upon? And I talk about this in Confessions, and I've talked about it on the radio a lot. You know, in the New Testament, Jesus said that that his children needed to be persecuted for his sake. In other words, the good Christian, if they're of no consequence to Satan and they're not being attacked or persecuted, they must, you know, they're not doing Christianity right. A true Christian is a threat to the devil. What happens when you have all this latitude and freedom? You manufacture the persecution narrative. And this validates the fact that you are a warrior, a God crusader here, one nation under God, and you're fighting for that. So, As someone who is who was never in that bubble and who very much is outside of it today, it strikes me that it seems so obvious to say you can't pretend to be persecuted when you have all this privilege and all this power. Surely there are people inside that evangelical bubble like you were who recognized that contradiction at some point. And I'm sure you knew some of them as you're growing up in that world and you're living in that world. What goes on amongst those Christians who realize, you know what, you're telling me I'm under attack, but I don't think I am. You're telling me we're being persecuted, but I don't want to trade places with any other group. They don't have it better than we do. In red state Oklahoma, I don't hear a lot of self-reflective language like that. I. Uh, most of what I hear is the nation belongs to us at any moment. The Democrats, seculars, liberals, foreigners, whatever, want to take it away from us. Now, there are examples of people who are believers, God believers, Bible believers, who are champions of state church separation, uh, like uh, the famous pastor Tony Campolo. You know, he's mm -hmm. on record saying, look, you know, my God doesn't need religious privilege in this country. My God doesn't need, this doesn't need to be a theocracy for my God to be validated. And so it's refreshing to see that there are spiritual leaders throughout the country who have teamed up with organizations like the American Humanist Association to protect the church-state line, because everybody wins, right? If the state is not a church, private religious liberty remains protected but we haven't turned ourselves into a theocracy. And there are Christian leaders, not enough of them, but there are Christian leaders in this country who know that and who are battling to protect the Constitution. So what is it that helped you get out of that rabbit hole finally, that helped you see that perspective that so many of the other people in your church were not seeing? It's something that I, I've tried to reverse engineer. and. I don't know, it's a ton of different factors. I, I'll try to encapsulate it. Yeah. When I was in my Fox News bubble, and this is true of a great many conservatives, statistically it's been measured, that people who vote conservative are more likely statistically to get their information about the world 
from a single news source. 40% of polled Trump voters got their news about the world from Fox News. Almost half of everybody who voted for Trump got their news about the world shaped by a single network, Fox News, and also kind of a one-two punch. It's right-wing radio, Rush Limbaugh, Michael Savage, Glenn Beck, etc. So these conduits don't just bend reality. They become reality. It, it really is kind of a cult model. You know, it, it alters your behavior. It's, it's behavior control, information control, thought control, and uh, environment control, what Stephen Hassan calls the bite model. And it was when I came out of my religious faith, when I said I was an atheist in 2008, I was still a political conservative. I was an opponent of Barack Obama, and you know, I, I thought the Democratic Party was all these, I'd carried all that. And once I left the religious dogma, I began to realize that my political opinions had all been filtered through my religion. Like, how did I feel about social programs like welfare? Well, you know, wait a minute. How did I feel about the death penalty? How did I feel about foreign nations? Now that I don't think that we are one nation under God, selected by God to be better than everybody else, right? How do I feel about LGBT marriage? Uh, how do I feel about all these other issues? Boom, 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 boom. Abortion, right? How do I feel about that now that I don't hold to a religious narrative? And so I had to get rid of the religion. And then after that, it took a couple of years for me to systematically dissect and then discard a lot of the other baggage that had come along with it. And I think some of that was also informed by the fact that I was now no longer living in a pod, but thanks to the online community, the internet, a wildly diverse atheist movement, I was also being introduced to other ideas and challenged on my own ideas. And so, so I think a lot of factors came into play. So you're saying that, for example, on abortion issues, you you used to say, because of my religion, I oppose abortion. It, it makes God unhappy. But you left religion. You now believe you're, you're, you're now an atheist. And so you had to convince yourself, okay, why do I oppose abortion rights all of a sudden? And when religion's out of the picture, it's much harder to defend those positions. It was, I wrote a whole chapter on abortion. You know, was, I was hesitant to do it because I can already hear the protestations. Why is a dude talking mm -hmm. about abortion? But I consider these human rights discussions. You know, I don't have to be black to be grieved by racism and to, to be advocates for those of color who are being discriminated against. I want to be part of those human rights discussions. I don't have to be gay to fight for LGBT rights. I don't have to be a female to be able to stand alongside women to defend reproductive autonomy and human rights. And that's how I approach the chapter. And I hope people receive that in that spirit. Um, but when I was in the faith, we believed in the soul. I mean, the second that the egg and the sperm hooked up, man, that's a, that's a human being. It's not a cluster of cells and blah, blah, blah. It's, it, it's a person with an eternal destiny. And that person cannot defend itself, so we must go and defend the soul. So you step out of religion, and you get into these dissections of, well, how do you how do you even define the soul? Is there any evidence for the soul? I referenced Dr. Julian Mussolino's book called The Soul Fallacy, where he was talking about the fact that if a soul did exist and it drove our whole identity, that's a scientific question. That's measurable. Like, we should be able to see the soul 
pushing all the gears in the machines in these directions, the soul is, there's no reason to believe in it. So you start to walk away from that, and then you think, okay, well, what constitutes a person? And this, you know, this zygote, that, 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 no, it's not, that's not a human being, this cluster of cells. And then beyond that, you realize that more than half of all fertilized eggs are ejected from the female body without ever taking hold, which would have made God the most prolific abortion doctor in the universe. I mean, just time, once you walk away from religion, you have, you give yourself permission to be honest about these questions. And at the all end of the day, ultimately for me, it was like, I got no business, no right telling a woman what happens to her body. And uh, it was easier to do that when I didn't feel like I had a divine edict to fight for the unborn. You know, I feel like that same shift happened for me when it just came to religion alone. Forget the social issues, which for me came much later. I didn't even think about them until I already was an atheist. But just thinking about the afterlife, just thinking about why I'm here. How did I get here? Yeah, you have to go through all that. Well, okay, if God's out of the picture or if supernaturalism is out of the picture, you got to rethink all of that stuff. And that that takes work. <laughs> like your whole worldview doesn't make sense anymore. And you got to could reconfigure the whole thing. Was it, it helped me to him mm -hmm. to, to let, I mean, and we're seeing this by the second in the evangelical hard right Republican party. This is a fear culture. Mm -hmm. And when I was a devout believer, we were just afraid all the time. I mean, for people who believe that our God could kick anybody else's, any other God's ass, like, you know, the devil's already lost. There's no contest. My God is the winner in every situation. I'm already victorious in my Savior, blah, blah, blah. This is the window dressing. This is the lip service that we would give it. But we were scared all the time. We were scared of the devil in our in our music and our movies and influence and friends. You know, we talk about the satanic panic and we got pastors talking about Satan and everything today. I mean, for people that supposedly believe they've already won the victory, they act like at any moment they'll lose everything and they're hugely vulnerable. You know, we saw that in the political conventions recently, like the Republican convention was very much built on the idea that you need to be scared of what's to come if Joe Biden wins. Whereas I feel the Democratic convention was very much, yes, if Trump wins, things are going to get worse. But also Biden is this uh, agent of hope and change. And that's typically, I mean, that's kind of how those conventions have gone in the past too. There's a reason Obama campaigned on hope, whereas Republicans typically campaign on if we lose, all these horrible things are going to happen, even though both sides can make those cases. Yeah. It, it seems like fear is very much what Trump is using right now as he campaigns for re-election. That, that doesn't surprise me. Well, I was, uh, the conversation for me began a few years ago. I was talking to a uh, uh, psychologist, um, uh, Dr. Hector Garcia, and he was mentioning to me that it, this stuff's been measured and we find trends. Now, all human beings are prone to tendencies. We're all guilty of tribalism and we're all guilty of confirmation bias. So I'm not, don't take this and run with it too far, but people's brains and how they think and their behaviors have been measured by psychologists. And we have found that people who vote conservative, who lean politically conservative are simply more afraid. They're, they travel less, 
They are exposed to other cultures less. They even tend to be more germaphobic. They respond more to stark and fearful imagery. Uh, there's even some evidence that their amygdalas might be slightly larger, you know, this emotion center in the brain. And fear is a powerful emotion. Well, what do you do with a hugely frightened and easily frightened culture that you want to rally behind you? You freaking scare them. So that's why I think when you see, you know, in the United States of Trumpistan, we see all of this fear language. They're coming. They're going to come get you. They're going to burn your cities down. They're going to take away everything you hold dear. They're coming for your kids and your God. What was it? Trump even said that Biden could hurt God. How's that yeah. possible? <laughs> and yet the MAG is, right? If they look at that and they are primed to be fearful and they respond to fear language, they rally behind the guy who says, I'll be the hero. I'll protect you. I will fix it. What did he say at the convention four years ago? He said, I alone can fix it, which is a statement that is so non it's so unsustainable. You would think that would have been a deal breaker, right? You and would no think for people who believe in God to fix everything and who whose entire faith rests on God is the one person who can save us yeah. for a man to step in and say, nope, it's me. And they're just like, yep, all right, I'm going along with it. For, forget the Nobel laureates, forget the, the world's greatest scientists and philosophers, forget all the people, forget the, the constitutional experts, 7 billion people on the planet, They really and 300 plus million Americans. And people really bought that this guy, who has essentially fabricated his whole past, if you, anyone who's done a cursory look into his past, it's all, even his, even his ghostwriter for Art of the Deal said, we made it all up. We made it all up. We were selling books. I had no idea that this was going to get serious and he was going to run for president. You guys need to know. I, I wrote it. It's bogus. Nobody cares. And I think it's because in religious circles, and you touched on this, there's, they're already primed for authoritarian thinking, right? They like the fact that Trump acts like a king and not a president. He ignores the rule of law. He pushes everybody around. He does it his way. Hey, he gets result. He's God's man. I like that. They're primed by their religion and their adoration for Yahweh, the ultimate authoritarian. They're primed to rally behind savior figures. And this is hugely problematic. I have a question about, was it easier for you to leave evangelical Christianity and became and become an atheist? Or was it... Uh, harder to like leave the GOP. You're <laughs> saying the GOP, the, the, the political thinking yeah. came later. So you get the hindsight of saying, okay, I left religion and I left conservatism. Which one was more difficult? Like what's more, I wonder what's more scandalous to my evangelical parent, <laughs> the fact that I'm an atheist or a registered Democrat, because yeah. it's close. I'd be yeah. a close one. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, I, for me, leaving the faith was by far the hardest. It was the most, it was so traumatic. I mean, uh, people who weren't immersed in that and you believe in a literal hell. And I was working for a company and 80% of their clientele was churches. So, I mean, I'm like, what happens if they find an excuse to fire me? I'm getting kind of long in the tooth to start a career over from scratch. What other skills do I have? Is my family going to fall apart? Am I going to lose contact with all my friends? What if I'm wrong? I don't want to burn in hell. And I mean, I was up all night. My stomach was in a knot. I was in a very, very dark place. How long did that transition take for you, by the way? From about a year and a half. It, okay. it took me about a, it took me almost two years to, to get past that. Even though I logically, I knew hell 
was irrational and that I knew that I was logically correct, it took me like oh, oh, well over another year, year and a half to get past this nagging emotional, I don't know, childhood indoctrination, you know, that'll flat screw you up, you know? Yeah. Cause even in your brain, you're like, well, I know it's crap, but in your heart, you're like, what if I'm wrong? What if I go to hell and roast forever? You know, that stuff's real. And it's one of the reasons I'm such an outspoken spoken opponent of the indoctrination of young children for that reason. This is a question I've had for you for a while, because I think you're the only one I know who can answer this well. Why is it that if I told you there's a Christian movie out, I mean, if I said that, you know that's shorthand for some really crappy movie <laughs> that people like us are probably going to mock. Why is it that like Christians are so bad at k- pop culture, the movies, the music, all that stuff, but they're so good at political manipulation? Like how come their uh, overtaking of the Republican Party isn't some B-level crappy version of Karl Rove? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I, you know, I, I was I, when I was in radio. I was a Christian radio host back in the nineties and early two thousands, and it was a known thing that if something was popular in the culture, and there was an artist that was popular, we had to have a Christian version of it. So if there's a big hit by a major pop artist and they sold a squillion albums, we'll give us six months. <laughs> we got somebody who looks like them and sounds like them, and then we go out. We'd say, well, if if you like that worldly thing, you will love this squeaky clean jesus version over here you can listen to us without any guilt or fear. i've heard you i've heard you give a talk on this and what made me laugh going through it is that one i had never heard of any of the knockoff christian versions of all the bands and and books you mentioned yeah. but also that you weren't kidding there was a christian version of damn near everything yeah. that was popular in, it, in the secular culture it's a little scary the lack of originality you know, it's just scary. And so then all of a sudden, a bunch of major record labels came in and they scooped them up because Christian music's very profitable. Yeah. Especially right now, the praise and worship uh, thing. People license that those songs and people are making millions of dollars. That's a whole other conversation. But my challenge now is that, you know, a lot of that broadcasting is just freaking homogenized. It's like they cranked it out of a vanilla kind of a machine deal. And the films, you know, Christian movies have always been crap. They released one back when I was a kid called Super Christian. It's one of the worst things I've ever seen. It was literally a Christian who had a super cape on and would fly around yes. doing the work of Jesus and stuff. Yes. You know? I mean, they, they had the Thief in the Night movies and they had a bunch of others. But that's exactly so, my point. They're so laughably bad. And yet when it comes to, okay, well, we need to win the presidency, yeah. they, they know how to get it done. And that scares know. me. I don't know. I like, I don't know how these culture, I don't know. How does pure flicks yeah. and the tripe, they're, everything they produce is like a culty Mentos commercial, right? <laughs> how, do, how does that happen? And they make money with these films. Yeah. How, how do they put out that cheese? And then over here, they're so unbelievably influential in, with ways, in ways that ha- have such serious consequences? I don't know the answer. Actually, it's, it's a really good question, but I don't know the answer. So let me go back to your story here. You found a way out of the church and you found a way out of this conservative bubble. And I wonder, this is a conversation I've had with other atheists, that whatever worked for you, 
that got you to stop believing in God. That may not work for everyone else. So to say, well, you just got to read this book or you just got to listen to this person or just think about this. It doesn't matter. Everyone's going to have their own path to figure it out. What do you think in your story is something you hope other Christians could follow? Is there anything that you went through that you're like, you know what? If other people went through this or they knew this, they might be able to walk that path as well. Or is it something they just got to figure out on their own? I think there's a, a few answers. I'm not trying to be like a politician on this and being like, well, you know, there's there's all these different shades to it. But uh, I had come to a point in my life, maybe it was midlife. I don't know. I, I just got tired of people telling me just to take it on faith. So I had come to a point in my own gut where I was dissatisfied with fake it till you make it. You know, Jesus, it doesn't, it's not supposed to make sense. In fact, the more it doesn't make sense, the more we're supposed to lean on God. You know, and meanwhile, I'm like, well, God is not the author of confusion. And yet I'm wildly confused. And uh, so I, I had to come to a point where I was curious enough to take the next step and that I gave myself permission to continue despite the potential consequences. And, um, I think that people that makes it sound very personal then. Yeah. It, I, you know, I, I don't, if you talk to somebody who is what they call doxastically closed, you know, a, a great example is when someone comes to me and they want to talk about their faith, usually it's in a defensive posture. Yeah. I'll say, is there anything that would ever make you change your mind? And if they say no, I go, okay, cool. Well, let's have some, have a great day. We'll see you later. Right. Because you just admitted that you're starting with the answer and you're not interested in disconfirming information. And often that promotes a little curiosity. Oh, well, I'll hang on just a second, you know, mm -hmm. but I think, you know, we need to find, I'm most interested now in people who are, they're doubting and they're, they, they know it doesn't make sense, but they've been primed not to challenge. My thing is, is to lead with questions and to remind, to, to remind people, it's okay to give yourself permission to ask, you know, like the, the one disciple in the New Testament that our parents never told us to emulate was Thomas. Why? Because Thomas doubter. was a doubter, right? But I think Thomas was the best disciple because he's like, well, you need to show me the nail holes in your hands before I'll, I'll say that you are the risen Christ. He was looking for evidence. And I think my shtick is to kind of remind people, you're not an echo of someone else's voice. You're not charged to carry a family mantle. You don't have to live, vote, love, worship like your parents or your culture. You get to be you on your terms, and you have to give yourself permission to take the journey. And that seems to help, you know, just encouraging people that it's going to be okay. Do you but ever listen to any of those conservative uh, radio hosts now, Rush Limbaugh, Glenn Beck, or do you ever see clips of their shows these days? It's a little bit. I used to listen and watch all the time, like it was always running, even in the background. Yeah. Uh, late, and I ask because I'm curious if they're sounding the same today as they did, or if their tactics have shifted. Rush to me is exactly the same. You know, he's been doing this. He's been spewing, spewing the same awfulness in the same way. You know, he's he's essentially he race baits black people. He's uh, thinks climate change is a hoax because volcanoes. Um, it's 
ironic that he's got freaking lung cancer because he was railing for decades about the fact that all these cancer scares with smoking were bogus. And of course, now he's got advanced lung cancer. I'm not celebrating that. I just think Mm -hmm. it's ironic, but he's been, you know, he's been awful to women. He's awful to in on every level, but like people like Sean Hannity and Glenn Beck, they've just got Tucker Carlson. You know, they were always a little wacky and they were always right wing. But there is an intensity and a fervor, a a zealotry going on right now that I have not seen before. Uh, Do they feel emboldened because of the current administration? Is it a weird desperation because they fear losing power? Are they just losing their minds? (laughs) You know, I have no idea. They're getting crazier. I mean, even the the evangelists, the Franklin Grahams and the Paula Whites and stuff. I mean, they're just getting wackier. Yeah, it it is weird to see some of them who are always just wrong, but I don't know, kookily weird. They're, yeah. they're just strange. But now they're like genuinely harmful. And it almost is laughable that I think Rachel Maddow got her start on Tucker Carlson's show. Like he would, she would be a frequent guest, like the liberal he liked to argue with. And I think she's been asked in interviews, like, what the hell happened to him? And she just kind of dodges the question, like, I have no idea what's going on. Because <laughs> because like you said, it just seems like he's gone off the deep end and he's not alone. It's other people as well. Um, let me ask you, one of the big questions as we head into this election then is, okay, if Trump has his base, one of the ways that he could lose is if some of his largest constituencies, if he, if he loses support in some of his largest constituencies. And white evangelicals were one of his biggest bases in 2016, like 80% of white evangelicals who voted, voted for Trump. Is there anything that could happen at this point that you think uh, to peel off at least some of those voters in swing states? Because I don't know, some polling, at least from a month or two ago, maybe slightly before the pandemic showed nothing had changed. It's still 80%, 81%. But like, okay, you're you're in their camp. You used to be in their camp. What would it take to get a few of them to say, you know what, <laughs> to advance my views, to advance my religious views, yeah, to, to uh, get to the country that is more like what Jesus wanted? Um, I either don't vote or I don't vote for Trump. I vote for Biden. I don't know. Is there anything you would suggest? You're Biden's campaign staffer now. What do you do? I may not be the best guy to answer this because I I've been wrong on so many. Like as soon as Trump took office, I thought, well, three months of awfulness, you know, because we know this is going to be a freak show. We know this is going to be crazy. People are going to run from him in droves. The evangelicals are going to realize that, no, this guy is the antithesis of the best teachings of Jesus, right? He's, there's no way we can stand behind this guy. And instead, as you said, they're still there by the tens of millions and Franklin Graham and other people rationalize it. My parents are these Puritan believers in their eighties. They're so strict that they won't even have a beer in the fridge. You know, my mother teaches new Testament Greek. This is how hardcore they are. They are horrified by sex outside of marriage and divorce, and drinking and swearing. No one can swear. And they're those types of people. How do they love? They, they, Donald Trump. And I look at them and I think, how did, how? And the only thing I can come up with is for their entire lives, no matter how awful their guy is, 
Democrats are worse. Mm -hmm. If it's a Democrat, you're communist. Communists are the devil. They come out of the Cold War mentality, out of the uh, Red Scare kind of thing, where it was Satan's communism, a worship of the state. Uh, that's why they're against Black Lives Matter, because a few of the organizers have Marxist tendencies. Well, there you go. The devil is part of Black Lives Matter, you know. And so they've decided no matter how awful Trump is, well, the left is even worse. I think they've also adopted this King Cyrus narrative that says God sometimes uses terrible people to bring about good. So if Trump is just an absolutely shitty human being, but he stacks the Supreme Court to protect the rights of the unborn. Which is exactly what those white evangelical pastors who are close to Trump say. That's yeah. their argument. I mean, it's an end justifies to me. So you know what? Sure, he's he uh, he's. I would never accept his behavior in a spouse or a child or a sibling or a friend. No way. Predatory, sociopathic, pathological liar, absolutely awful human being, a bully. All these things. Ah, no, nah, I wouldn't buy that. But you know what? He is going to essentially stack the deck with people who represent my individual faith and my proper God with a proper name. And as long as he does that, I'm willing to turn a blind eye to all of the other awfulness. I see it as a kind of moral rot, massive hypocrisy. I think Trump's a symptom to the larger problem of the moral rot of the evangelicals in the United States. He has you essentially showed us what people are made of. And the fact that he enjoys such support now in the middle of this clown show, it actually makes me very afraid for the future. Are you saying that all the stuff about family values, about how Christians, th those types of Christians are like the, the uh, they decide what's moral. We, ha we are the people who are good moral people. Do you think Trump exposed the hypocrisy or that they never believed that stuff in the first place? Well, I think in their everyday lives, they try to be moral people, a lot of them. I mean, I think there are sociopaths and corrupt people who have been consolidating power. So I'm not talking about them necessarily. But I mean, a lot of the people who rationalize it, I think they have decided that they will only see the good and they will excuse the bad. It's a lot. It reminds me a lot of how they deal with the worst verses in the Bible. You go to them and you're like, well, how do you feel about the slaughter by Yahweh of half a million people? When men, women, the infants by sword. And how do you feel about slavery and the beating of slaves? And how do you feel about forcing a woman to miscarry because she had an illegitimate child? And how do you feel about all this other stuff? And you throw it out and you see them and they're like, oh, you know, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord. He just kind of, hmm. they'll do anything except condemn the Bible because they have been primed again for this authoritarian way of thinking. And they see only the love verses. It's cherry-picking 101. I think there's a lot of them that have simply cherry-picked this false narrative about Trump, the savior and hero. One last question for you before we, we end things. Do you think there is one big thing that you were wrong about when you were an evangelical, when you were a conservative, that you've changed your mind about that I mean, you mentioned abortion, you mentioned gay marriage and all that stuff, but is there just one belief that you are uh, probably the biggest one for you to overcome in all of this? Well, I mean, hardest I, one, maybe I, I like, you know, I was, I was kind of a God and guns guy. I mean, I wasn't like the drive down the street in the rusty pickup truck, you know, with a flag waving kind of guy, but I, you know, I always felt I had that really kind of bumper sticker 
mentality about the Second Amendment and our rights as Americans. I had some of that. Um, the death penalty, you know, to to look at it. I've got a whole chapter about the death penalty. I'm not. I'm not just shilling for the book. I'm just saying it. It. I can't <laughs> encapsulate it here. Yeah. Uh, abortion for me was the toughest, and I think it remains. Uh, when I was a, a an evangelical Fox Newser, I believe that liberals took glee in killing babies. Okay, this is how I I thought about it. Yeah. You know what? They don't care. They kill. We we had. Um, Christian artist on the radio who sang songs about babies ripped out of wombs and how the mothers were devastated and regretted it for the rest of their lives. And there were, there were Christian songs that were, the lyrics were babies saying prayers for the mothers that aborted them, you know, and just babies in dumpsters. I mean, I'm not trying to be sensationalistic. I'm just trying to show you the temperature of the arguments against abortion. And we felt like the liberal was so callous toward human life that they would discard a baby, a human life, for their, for their own convenience. And coming out of that and having to reassess what human life, what personhood is, in the shadow of the rights of a woman and her bodily autonomy, that was probably the one that has taken me the most time. And I think it's still something that as I talk to my fellow liberals and seculars and humanists, this is not a conversation we take lightly. We don't sit around going, oh, yeah, yay, more abortions, abort, abort, abort. We're not those people. It's, you know, we have those questions about, well, what about the late term and when does personhood happen? And, and how do we feel about that as advocates for human rights? And what's the right thing to do? I think we're having nuanced, thoughtful dialogue about this, ultimately deciding that, you know what, if you're not the woman at some point, it's none of your goddamn business. <laughs> you know? I've said I mean, this story before, I think, on my podcast, but uh, for a year when I was studying medicine, I went to a conference of a bunch of uh, pro-choice medical students. And what was fascinating, one of the most uh, eye-opening segments for me is I went to a talk and basically the person speaking said, you know, all of you in this room, presumably, are going to become doctors, whether or not you would become OBGYNs or whatever, but you're all going to be doctors. If you had the training, if you had the ability to perform abortions, how many of you would perform a first trimester abortion, whatever that required, a pill, whatever it was? And everyone stood up. Um, there, there was a way to anonymize it. I won't get into those details, but yeah, pretty yeah. much everyone stood up. She said, how many of you would do a second trimester? And it was very few people, relatively speaking, like about half the room, room I think, like sat down. And then how many would do a third trimester? And it was literally like a couple of people were standing. And her whole point was in a group, in this group of future doctors who are pro-choice, there is a lot of hesitation about doing that stuff because, like you are saying, this isn't some whimsical thing that we're just like, yep, until the point of birth, let's chop off their heads. That's not how it works. There is a lot of thinking about this stuff and when should, what's the deadline? How should we do this? And of course, generally speaking, everyone was like, we want to make sure women never get to that point yeah. where they have to make that decision so late. So let's work to make it easier to access earlier in the process. Um, but you're right. Like, no, no one takes it as callously as I feel the left gets stereotyped. And when I was a right winger, we never once stopped to think, well, what are the societal 
precursors to the pregnancy? And what about a, a partner abuse? You know, we find that there's a statistically higher percentage of people who are candidates for abortion, who are in abusive relationships. The vast majority of late-term abortions are done to save the life of the mother or in extreme birth defects where the fetus may not survive. And, and you know, to get into the nuts and bolts of it, instead, if you're a binary thinker, you just say, well, you know, they're evil and they hate life and they, they're going to essentially rip. We saw Trump do it during his uh, state of the union yeah. speech. He was talking about they're, these doctors want to murder your children, which is more fear language. But, you know, I had to come out of that and actually learn about, well, what are the reproductive processes and how does this work with the egg and the sperm and the zygote and what does the fetus look like at certain stages? And in the book, I actually have illustrations that <laughs> are done in pen, uh, pencil that sort of show, well, you know, when they say this is a, a developed baby, you're actually looking at a cluster of cells that looks like this. This is not a person. How do we then approach these questions? And, and I got there. And at the end of the day, it becomes a human rights issue about the mother as much or more than anything. And I'm tired of these freaking white guys in positions of power deciding what happens to a woman's body as it has recently happened in the state of Alabama. You know, it's not the role of the government or the church or the community to tell a woman what happens with her body. And that's just where I land. So, well, if you can get out of it, there are hope for other, there's hope for other people in that bubble as well. So the book is called Confessions of a Former Fox News Christian. There's a link in the show notes, and uh, you can listen to Seth Andrews at the Thinking Atheist podcast. Seth, thanks for your time. I appreciate it, buddy. Always fun. Thank you very much.